Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. <clears throat> I wanted to um, follow up on uh, Brian's talk last night <clears throat> about um, Buddha knowing Dhamma and uh, views number three, right? <clears throat> You've noticed we have lots of views and opinions and thoughts on just about anything. You know, if something comes to mind, there's usually a, an opinion or a thought about it. <clears throat> is that right? Have you noticed that? Or is it just me? Uh, <laughs> and one of the, the main themes that comes up in, in practice is the thought or um, view of what's the right way to practice. How am I doing? Am I doing it right? Am I doing it wrong? And there's many different approaches to practice, many different styles of practice. Um, and so that can make it even more confusing. And I, I think I might have mentioned it here before. Some, uh, some teachers that I've practiced with one teacher, his main teaching was simple and easy, simple and easy. Empty phenomena rolling on. I think that was mentioned, was it mentioned in one, one of the talks here? Empty phenomena rolling, that was uh, Menindraji, his main instruction to, to Joseph. Settle back <laughs> and just watch empty phenomena rolling on. <clears throat> Other teachers Practice like your hair is on fire. <laughs> Don't waste time. Heroic effort. Turn up the jets. <clears throat> Make every moment count. And there, both approaches have, uh, have real um, power, validity, and can be just right for someone at sometime and maybe not as right for someone else or that same person at a different time. So who do you listen to? How do you know? We have you know, on, on this retreat a um, number of teachers and uh, you go into an interview as sometimes can happen and you come out and saying, gosh, they knew just what to tell me. It's, it's amazing how wise they are. You know? <laughs> and if you went to the other teacher, they might have told you something completely different and you could walk out saying, gosh, they knew just what to tell me. <laughs> how did they know? Lots of different ways to do this practice, particularly in um, working with thoughts, uh, which is the, the place that so many of us get caught most of the time. Uh, that's where we get caught in our thoughts, our views, our opinions, but a thought comes through the mind and we, we tend to believe it, even if you've been practicing for quite some time. Anytime you get lost, it's generally the fact that you've believed a thought. They're so slippery. And there are lots of different ways to work with thoughts. But the Buddha recognized how easy it is to get caught in them. In a moment, we identify with the thought, take it to be real, and we create a whole world. It was this uh, uh, favorite Cal Calvin and Hobbes cartoon of mine, uh, for those who are from outside the States, Calvin and Hobbes is a, a very popular cartoon uh, 
strip, comic strip. And Calvin one day um, is saying, thinking to himself, here I am, happy and content. Second frame, but not euphoric. (laughs) Third frame, so now I'm no longer content. (laughs) I'm unhappy, my day is ruined. Fourth frame, I need to stop thinking while I'm ahead. In just a moment, what seemed like a fine connection is not enough. And I'm sure you've seen the, the phenomenon, say somebody is leading a metta meditation practice and you're trying to generate loving kindness and it's just not there. And then the mind says, I can't feel that loving space. I know why I wasn't loved when I was young. I know why, because I'm not really lovable or capable of love. This is, it sounds kind of funny. These are actual distillations of many times I've heard one variation or another of this. And you're just off to the races. Or I did this, I'm a bad person, and now I'm going to beat myself up for the next three decades uh, because of it. Mm. So the, the Buddha saw how slippery thoughts are, and he also um, said that uh, it's important to understand um, different ways to work with thoughts. So for the first part of this talk, I wanted to share with you some um, strategies that he gave for working with thoughts, and then hopefully we'll make a point uh, from uh, this, these teachings. And this is from uh, Majima Nikaya number 20, the Vitaka Santana Sutta, which is also called uh, the uh, Discourse on uh, Removal of Distracting Thoughts, or this translation, The Relaxation of Thoughts. And he says, um, there is the case where unskillful thoughts filled with desire, aversion, or delusion arise in a practitioner while referring and attending to a particular theme. That is, you're being mindful, you're connected with a particular object, and then some unskillful thoughts arise. When that happens, one should attend to another theme apart from the unskillful one, connected with what is skillful. Then those unskillful thoughts are abandoned and subside. With their abandoning, one steadies the mind within, settles it, unifies it, and concentrates it. And there's a a metaphor for each of these. Just as a or a simile, I should say, just as a skilled carpenter or his apprentice would use a small peg to knock out, drive out, and pull out a larger one, in the same way, if unskillful thoughts filled with desire, aversion, or delusion arise while referring to and attending to a particular theme, one should attend to another theme. And when attending to this other theme, the mind becomes settled, unified, concentrated, etc. I'm condensing it a bit. So what does that mean? So there are particular um, antidotes that one can, um, one can utilize when you get caught in a particular pattern of thought. And I, I would imagine that you've seen this for yourself. So for instance, you're having a lot of uh, anger. What wholesome 
theme might you uh, might you employ instead of uh, the anger? Anybody? Metta. That's fairly easy one. Suppose you are uh, having a lot of doubt. Anything that you can think of that can help? Karuna, Karuna compassion, good. Uh huh. Anything else? What's that? Concentration. Concentration can be good. Yes. Faith. That's a classic one. The antidote. To, to doubt is faith. And so you might think of somebody who inspires you or who believes in you or who um, has been a benefactor to you and uh, is uh, cheering you on or who by their own example uh, is an embodiment of, of faith. Yeah. Or if you're getting caught in desire uh, any reflection you can think of? There's one classical one. What's that? Death. Death. <laughs> That'll wake you up, yes. Yes, That's, that is one. Actually, it's the end game for th- this particular reflection. Anyone else? Renunciation could be good, but a reflection, one classical reflection is on impermanence. What is this going to look like in six months from now? Is it going to do it for me? You know? So there are these classical replacing unwholesome thoughts with wholesome thoughts. But he realizes that that might not do the trick. And I would say the first strategy is being mindful, but sometimes the mindfulness isn't strong enough. So these can be used when the mindfulness is not quite strong enough. If those unskillful thoughts filled with desire, aversion, or delusion still arise while attending to this other theme connected with what is skillful, then one should scrutinize the drawbacks of those thoughts. Truly, These thoughts of mine are unskillful. These thoughts of mine result in stress. And as one is scrutinizing the drawbacks of those thoughts, those unskillful thoughts are abandoned and subside. And here's the image. Just as a young woman or man fond of adornment would be horrified, humiliated, and disgusted if the carcass of a snake or a dog or a human being were hung around their neck. (laughs) In the same way, unskillful thoughts imbued with desire, aversion, or delusion, um, one should scrutinize the drawbacks saying, these thoughts are unskillful. They will result in stress. And as scrutinizing the drawbacks of those thoughts, then they abandon and and subside. So what does that mean? If you have a chance, if you have a choice to see there is a kind of coming into your field a particular theme that you've seen over and over and over, if you can have enough familiarity with this. This is the classic colloquial phrase, don't go there. You know, don't even go there. Because if I jump on this train, it's going to, I know where it's going to lead, same place it led each time before. And sometimes it can be helpful to put a frame around the movie so you don't dive right into the movie screen. I'll, I'll share with you a, uh, a, a personal story around this, where um, this is on one three-month retreat a number of years ago when I, was, um, when I was a big football fan. I'm a lesser of a football fan now, still watch, but in those days it was a major addiction because um, we had the best team. Uh, uh, <laughs> 
<laughs> and I made the mistake, actually, of, um, of taking a look at the schedule before I went on my retreat. <clears throat> and I have the kind of mind, um, I cannot tell you what I did three days ago, but if I see something in print or visually, it somehow sticks. It's just one part of my memory is not really there, another part works. And I saw the schedule. And I knew Sunday they're going to be in Atlanta at 1 p.m., right? <laughs> and uh, if, you're, if you're a football fan, you know, every Sunday the games are played. And by Thursday, I started to have these thoughts, oh, Atlanta on Sunday at 1 <laughs> And I was kind of getting, my body was going through what it goes through it in my life at home. And I was, you know, I get more and more revved up. And then Sunday at 1 p.m. for three hours, <laughs> I'd be thinking, I wonder how they're doing. And it would take me like a day to come down, you know. And I thought, this is crazy. This is, this is, this is not the way to spend my six weeks here. It was six weeks practice. And so I said, I better figure out something uh, by the second week. Um, this, I went through two weeks of this. And then I just started to notice Thursday as I started to feel it Friday, just I started to notice and name football thoughts. Just, I just named that football thoughts. Like, do I really want to go down there and just naming it, oh, football. I, and I named it lightly with some humor, but just football thoughts, football thoughts. And it's helpful. You might try this uh, if you have some other obsessive thought that comes your way. And just give it a name and saying, wait, I, I don't need to go down this road. But that might be enough. So here's the third strategy. If unskillful thoughts still arise while scrutinizing the drawback of those thoughts, one should pay no mind and pay no attention to those thoughts. As one is paying no mind and no attention, those unskillful thoughts are abandoned and subside. And with that, the mind becomes steadied, settled, unified, concentrated. Just as a person with good eyes, not wanting to see forms that had come into range, would close their eyes or look away. In the same way, if those unskillful thoughts still arise while scrutinizing the drawbacks of those thoughts, he should pay no mind and no attention to them. And with that, they are abandoned and subside, and the mind becomes steady, unified, concentrated. Now, what does that mean? This is sometimes known as the strategy of forgetfulness and inattention. This is the Buddha saying, forget about it. Don't pay attention. And what he's saying in a very skillful way is, you don't need to keep on attending to something that you're getting caught up in. And to turn your attention elsewhere to something that is easier to connect with, that's happening in the moment. There's a, you might wonder, is, how is that different from the first one? The first one is substituting a particularly, uh, a particular wholesome reflection to replace the unwholesome thoughts. This is turning your attention elsewhere. So for instance, if you are uh, having a hard time staying with the breath, maybe sometimes the breath can be very triggering for some people. Then, uh, or for a while it's just too tight or narrow a, a focus, then you might turn your attention to just listening to sounds. Very spacious, very open, it's another moment of mindfulness, but not 
on the particular object that's difficult. Or if you have a pain in your body, which might happen from time to time, you don't have to keep paying attention to that pain. Your mind might think, oh, I'm supposed to be with what's most predominant. And this pain that's driving up the, me up the wall is most predominant. I've got to stay with it. Not skillful. Because after a while, the mind gets very tight and fatigued. The, the, the words that, that uh, I remember used in the, in the scriptures, the mind, uh, it, um, the brightness fades and the mind becomes withered. And when it's tight like that and tired and withered, it's really hard to be present. And so just very skillfully, you turn your attention to maybe a place in your body that's not hurting or listening to sounds or to, um, to just be with the breath if that's an okay uh, and more neutral place. Forgetfulness and inattention. You can turn your attention someplace else. But it still might not be enough. So there's a fourth. If these unskillful thoughts still arise while paying attention, paying no mind and no attention to those thoughts, one should attend to the relaxation of thought fabrication or thought formation with regard to those thoughts and attending to the relaxing of thought formation, those unskillful thoughts are abandoned and subside and with it the mind becomes settled, unified, concentrated. Just as the thought might occur to a person walking, why am I walking, oh, to a person walking quickly, why am I walking quickly? Why don't I walk slowly? So he walks slowly and then the thought occurs, why am I walking slowly? Why don't I stand? And so he stands. And then the thought occurs, why am I standing? Why don't I sit down? And so he sits down. And then the thought occurs, why am I sitting? Why don't I lie down? It's getting better and better, isn't it? Yeah. So he lies down. And in this way, giving up the grosser posture, taking the more refined one, in the same way, those unskillful thoughts, when they arise, one should attend to the relaxing of the thought formations with regard to these thoughts. And with that, they are abandoned and subside, and the mind becomes steadied, settled, and unified, concentrated. So this can have actually two different, um, uh, two different interpretations that I've come across. One obvious one is, oh, just chill out. You know, doesn't say that in the Pali Canon, but that's the idea. Just chill out. Just relax. You're getting really wound up here and just take it easy. That can be sometimes the most skillful thing to do. It can also have the interpretation, um, stilling the for thought formations is actually, um, can be going to the source of those thoughts, which can either be f getting in touch with the feeling underneath them, or uh, seeing how they arise out of nowhere and not glomming onto the thought, but just seeing the source of those thoughts. You can experiment with either one. But that first one, I really hope that you get, it can be very skillful to just relax <clears throat> if you're getting wound up. But that still might not be strategy that works. So here's the fifth. 
and I say this with a bit of caution, but um, this is the Buddha's strategy. If unskillful, still, if unskillful thoughts still arise while attending to the relaxing of thought fabrication with regard to those thoughts, then with teeth clenched and tongue pressed against the roof of the mouth, one should beat down, constrain, and crush mind with his awareness. As with teeth clenched and tongue pressed against the roof of the mouth, beating down, constraining, and crushing mind with awareness, those thoughts, unskillful thoughts, are abandoned and subside. Just as a strong man seizing a weaker man by the head or throat or shoulders <laughs> would beat him down, constrain, and crush him, you got the idea of the rest. Now, what in heaven's name could he be talking about? First, you have to remember that the Buddha came from uh, the warrior caste. And so there are some real images of conquering the mind. And it is possible to have a skillful attitude with this fifth strategy. In my experience, uh, one can't employ this if there's aversion in the mind. If you are frustrated and hating the mind, it will just get you tighter and tighter. But if you very firmly say enough as a a loving mother would say to her child as they run out into the street, no, or about to touch the hot stove, no. You can be very firm with love and just say, okay, that's enough. How many people have experienced that as a, possible skillful strategy. Okay, see, it can work. You've got to be really careful because if you have the kind of mind that gets frustrated with your experience, it's so easy for that to go into aversion and, um, and just more suffering. So uh, what's the teaching here? I, I wanted to share this with you both to give you some alternate strategies uh, to mindfulness, but also uh, another very important principle underlying the teachings. And that is, there's no one right way. And when you have the question, am I doing it right? This is just another thought if you think there's one right way, how should I do it? And there's many different, as I said before, approaches, and to see that one size doesn't fit all. Jack Cornfield has a, a, a really uh, wonderful book that originally was, it was entitled Living Buddhist Masters um, of 12 Burmese and Thai uh, Theravadan masters. Um, however, since almost all of them have passed away, the name is no longer living Buddhist masters. It's living Dharma. The Dharma doesn't, doesn't fade away. And each of these 12, it's really interesting to see, they, have, they share their way of doing Vipassana. And each one is a very profound technique. Some of those masters you can hear either subtly or maybe not so subtly saying, this is the real way. Some of them say, this is my way. 
But when you read one after another back to back, it's so clear, it's really brilliant what he did to see how many different ways there are to wake up. Ajahn Chah, who was Jack's teacher, uh, one of those 12, was uh, so, so good about this. And, uh, you know, many of you probably are uh, familiar with the classic story where, uh, where Jack was saying, you know, it seems like you contradict yourself a lot. You tell one person this and another person that. You know, what goes on here? And he says, well, it's like I know this this path very well, and if I see somebody falling off a ditch into, into the left, I'll say, go right, go right. And if I see the, another person falling off into a ditch on the right, I'll say, go left, go left. And then Jack once said to him, well, you know, you don't even seem like such an enlightened being uh, <laughs> at one point. And, and Ajahn Chah said, it's a good thing I... I don't fit your idea of enlightenment sometimes because you'd be looking for the Buddha outside of yourself. Who do you trust? Who do you turn to? So many different possibilities. And you probably have the obvious answer by now. This is the Buddha in his famous discourse to uh, the Kalamas. I can find it here. The Kalamas were this, uh, this village that had lots of different teachers coming through. And then the Buddha came sharing his dharma and they said you know other teachers have come through here and they all seem to they all say they know the truth and you're saying you know the truth who are we supposed to believe this is really confusing and he says um, it is indeed fitting to be uncertain kalamas fitting to doubt for in situations of uncertainty doubts surely arise you should decide kalamas not by what you've heard not by following convention, not by assuming it is so, not by relying on the texts, not because of reasoning, not because of logic, not by thinking about explanations, not by acquiescing to the views that you prefer, not because it appears likely and certainly not out of respect for a teacher, but when you would know Kalamas for yourselves, these things are unhealthy. These things, when entered upon and undertaken, incline towards harm and suffering. Then, Kalamas, you should reject them. And when you know, Kalamas, for yourselves, that these things are healthy, these things, when entered upon and undertaken, incline towards welfare and happiness, then, Kalamas, having come to them, you should stay with them. So, um, how to know what voice to listen to? And I say this, by the way, uh, with the um, um, encouragement that the the teachers, kind of like Ajahn Chah, saying, you know, so we've we know some of the territory, and so if we say go left. You know, you might first try that before following your own, uh, your own theory to just check it out. But not to take it as gospel. The thing is, you listen to yourself anyway, right? You believe the thoughts that get you caught. You believe them. You might as well learn how to listen and so you can feel the support that's right inside there. So what does this mean to trust in yourself? Kind of frightened me because I, you know, I didn't really have confidence that I was always coming out with the right answers. 
But as I've come to see, this is not about, hey, I'm going to get it right here. It's not about James knowing. It's about listening inside to the Buddha, as Ajahn Chah or Mahabua would say, the one who knows, or Ajahn Chah talked about your Buddha knowing. So you're trusting in your Buddha knowing, which is, which is different than trusting in James knowing or you knowing. There's a deeper place of wisdom inside that it's important to become more and more familiar with and learn how to access. If you're going to have an experience of a fresh understanding, it's not going to become, it's not going to be coming because you are so clever and figuring it out. Rarely does that happen. You know, remember I've said before, you don't have to figure it out. If you are very clever and saying, ah, see, I knew all the time. That's not an insight. In order to have an experience of, aha, oh, look at that. It means the mind was not analyzing and figuring out. There's a freshness and an openness when you have that new perspective. A line, I don't think I mentioned it here, from the Third Zen Patriarch, it says, uh, Stop talking and thinking and there's nothing you'll not be able to know. Because when you let go of that analyzing mode and you get in touch with a deeper place inside, then um, that wisdom is available to you. This is... uh, I don't know if I, maybe I did read this before. Luminous is this mind. Did I read this? No. Luminous is this mind, the Buddha says, brightly shining, but it is colored by the attachments that visit it. This unlearned people do not really understand and do not cultivate the mind. Luminous is this mind, brightly shining, and it is free of the attachments that visit it. This, the noble follower of the way, really understands. And so for them, there is cultivation of the mind. We are accessing the Buddha right inside. This is what we did when we took refuge the first night, taking refuge in the Buddha, not just being inspired by the historical Buddha. He's not around anymore. He can be very inspiring, that example. But when we take refuge in the Buddha, we're taking refuge in the Buddha right inside of us, that seed of enlightenment, bodhicitta, as it's spoken of in in, uh, Tibetan practice. Bodhicitta, seed of awakening. So how do we get in touch with that natural state of wisdom and love? That's inside of us. And I'd like to offer a few possibilities. One, as I said, is letting go of the figuring out mind and just bringing mindfulness into this moment. Because the mysterious way that mindfulness works is there's enough space that gets created for insights to just shine through. Simply being connected with the moment and life reveals itself in its own time. It's quite extraordinary how that works. It takes some trust in the process to let go of that figuring out mind. But when you do, something quite extraordinary happens over and over. Life is revealing itself to you. So that's one way to just be with this moment 
be with things as they are without toppling forward into the future. What if I don't get the answer? What if I don't figure it out? And just taking it one moment at a time. It's so much simpler to take it one moment at a time. Another really important um, support for getting in touch with this Buddha knowing that's right inside of you is learning how to listen to the different thoughts and messages that come through. So many different thoughts, so many different messages, so many different choices. Should I sit longer or is it time to go walking? Should I be with the breath or open to a more choiceless awareness? Should I walk faster or walk slow this time? Should I go for a cup of tea or just stay with practice and keeping it real simple? So many different possibilities, so many different thoughts. How do you know? Let alone in your life that says, should I stay in this relationship or not stay in this relationship? Should I move or stay? Should I eat a peach or a plum? You know, I, I'm just remembering uh, T.S. Eliot's uh, The Love Song of J. Alfred Prufrock just passed through my head and the line that I love, dare I eat a peach, he says. What should I eat today? How should I do it? Our life is filled with decisions. How do you learn how to listen inside? And I would say that one basic um, skill that we are cultivating, whether we realize it or not, is learning more and more how to listen to the truth. The, uh, the image that I like, that I've been inspired with for a long time now, is that of um, Milarepa in the Tibetan uh, iconography. You can always tell it's Milarepa. He has his hand to his ear, listening to the 100,000 songs of the Dharma, listening to the truth. And that, in a way, is what we're doing here. We're learning to listen to the truth in each moment. What is the truth in this moment? Oh, here's an in-breath, here's an out-breath. Or here's sadness, or here's joy. Here's a, an ache in my shoulder. Here's fear that arises because of it just to listen to the truth. And as you get more and more skilled at listening to the truth in each moment, you start to get better and better at listening to the truth right inside. How do you know? We'll just, uh, before I share any more on this, I'd like you to reflect maybe um, on um, some decision that you've made in your life that was a good decision that maybe you didn't know who was rolling around in your, in your head for a while and then suddenly it became obvious or clear. How do you know that you can trust that? Um, and I'll just take a few comments. Any signals or cues that tell you you can trust this? Anyone? Yes? It doesn't come from your head. Where does it come from? 
Okay, your gut, you just feel it in your gut. Okay, there's no one right answer I'm looking for, and that's a very uh, classical one. You just feel it in your gut. What does it feel like in your gut? Huh? Truth, okay. Anyone else? Yes? Your heart feels expansive. That's often what people say. There's just a kind of openness of heart. Thank you. What else? Anyone else? Sometimes when you're dealing with pushes from various people on various corners, it's there in the heart, but also you get encouragement. Okay, you get encouragement. How do you know to trust that encouragement? It feels, it feels good. It feels good. <laughs> yeah, I understand. Tell me what feel, how do you know that it feels good? Um, I think it feels, there's something opening about it. Yeah. Um, okay, good. I, I, this, again, there's no right answer. It's kind of what you just said. There's an openness of heart or expansiveness. There's an honesty. There's a kind of alignment with truth. Yeah, good. Anyone else? Yes. You, okay, a certainty to it. You just know this is true. Yeah. And what I, might, I suggest to you is to start becoming very familiar with how you just know how it feels right. And it can feel right in the body. That's one area. Like was said, oh, there's a, an opening or an alignment or a kind of... Um, uh, support, a kind of clarity to it. Uh, also, in the mind. How does it feel in the mind? What's the tone of that ring of truth in your mind? Anybody? Hmm? Pleasant, yes. Anything else? Clarity, yeah. Somebody else? Was it somebody? No internal argument anymore. It's what? The internal argument is gone. If you're hearing thoughts that are coming through with a finger wag that says, you better not blow it, dummy, that's probably not the voice of wisdom. Right? <laughs> But when there's often a sense of clarity, of support, of kindness, of alignment, there's a feel to that wisdom inside. We all have it and we all know it. And it's learning to listen to the tone in the mind, to the feeling in the body. If you're having fear as the predominant tone, this is not the way to run your life. I was saying to somebody in, uh, uh, in an interview just today, you know, when fear is running you, this is my, mm, my little game that I play with myself. If I feel, oh, it's fear that's running me. I, what I do is I take fear out of the driver's seat. I put it in the passenger seat. I put a seatbelt around it. <laughs> I put a helmet on it. I don't want to throw it out of the car. It's scared stiff to begin with, you know. <laughs> I honor it. I appreciate and say, yeah, it's really scary now but you don't get the keys to the car. And I wait until wisdom is behind my, um, my decision. So learning how to listen, it's really learning to, that, to listen to that wisdom inside. And as you do, um, you get more and more connected with it and better at feeling its energy and enjoying it.
<clears throat> it's never too late to change either. And it's never too late to learn. Practice is a continual learning experience. Because everything is changing. So how can you say, oh, this is how I'm, I'm supposed to do it. This is how much I'm supposed to do or what I'm supposed to do. As long as you're following the precepts and the community rules that we've agreed on, there's lots of latitude and leeway in practice. It's a trial, and an ongoing trial and error process. And as long as you keep on learning, then nothing is wasted. No experience, no matter how long you've gone down into the depths or where you've gone, nothing is wasted. One more time, I've gotten humbled. And for me, being humbled is part of the deal here. Because in that humility, each time you see you make it through and say, oh, wow, I forgot. I got lost there for a while. And now I'm back. And to see not only do you get humbled and can open you to real humility, but you get more and more confidence that you can meet the moment, as I said, I think in an earlier talk, that you can trust that the awareness will meet the moment. But not to think, now I got it figured out and I'll know the next, every time in the future. There's a line, I, I don't think I shared it in here, I, I love from uh, Hindu teachings. It says, even a 93-year-old saint isn't safe. It's just one thought away. Hey, I think I'm pretty cool. You're lost. Ooh, got a little cramp. So it's never too late. And the corollary to that is no matter how lost you are, coming back to the moment and to your wisdom is just one thought away. You might actually just connect with a very simple question. What do I need right now to support my practice? What do I need? Not what's the right thing to do, but what do I need to open to this moment with balance, with kindness, with wisdom? What do I need? So simple, so powerful. And not to think that, oh, this is the right way to do it. It's interesting. I'll share with you something that I, I just heard uh, recently. I was on a, I was doing a self-retreat. I think I mentioned I was doing a self-retreat here just uh, earlier uh, last month. And I was listening to uh, talks on Dharma Seed. And I was listening to uh, a talk by um, Analio, who... If you, if you know his book on Satipatthana, just a brilliant scholar and meditation teacher. And uh, someone, and he wrote the book Satipatthana, the, the, the most respected translation of the Satipatthana Sutta uh, that's out right now. And Joseph Goldstein gave a series of 46 talks on Analio's Satipatthana and came out with his own own big book, Mindfulness, based on Analio's uh, and, and those, those talks. So Analio was talking and somebody asked him about technique and methodology and you know how how much should we stay with the methodology that is listed in the in the the canon or the, the commentaries or that our teachers say. And he said, Well, it can be very useful but not to be wedded by it, to it. And then he shared his own practice. He said, uh, for instance, my main practice is metta now, which was first surprising to me uh, to hear that this great mindfulness master is basically metta is his practice. And then he said, uh, but I'll tell you, when I was starting to do metta, I had a really hard time because I'm 
I was very angry. And he talked about, he said, you know, I'm, I, I have uh, my culture, you know, I've got, he, anyway, he's ang he has that angry anger in, his, in him, he said. And I'd start to do the phrases, the metaphrases, and they, or I would hear that I'm supposed to do that, and they drive me up a wall, and I just get angrier and angrier. And I said, you know, metta's just not for me. And then one day, he was practicing in Sri Lanka, and he, uh, he got out of his kuti, his meditation hut, and he saw these little squirrels that were playing outside the meditation hut. And he said, they were so cute. <laughs> and in a moment, his heart just opened, looking at these squirrels. He said, oh, they're so cute. <laughs> and he, he noticed, oh, this is metta. <laughs> and that is basically what he does. He says, you won't find this in the, in the canon, but it's squirrel consciousness. <laughs> I think about those squirrels, my heart opens, and then I just stay with that feeling. No phrases, no technique, just settling in, and that's my main practice. <laughs> Thank you, Master. Yeah. You know, I share with you that metta for self that I, I hit upon the other day, or the, the self-compassion practice. You know, so many different ways. Some people here coming up uh, uh, with their own doorways, one person just reminding themselves, oh, lean back. And everything started to come, fall into place. Or what is awareness knowing right now? The wisdom is not just out there. If you think the wisdom is out there, you hear somebody say something wise in a Dharma talk and you say, gosh, they're so wise. I wish I could be that wise. You're missing the point. If you hear something that resonates with you and you're saying right on, yeah, it's just wisdom finding itself. It's right in here. And to keep on listening to that wisdom, as, as, the, as the Buddha says, ehi pasiko in the chants, ehi pasiko opanayako, ehi pasiko, come and see for yourself. Come and see for yourself. So, I'll close with a, a famous passage. The Buddha's last, wor last words, which he said to Ananda, his last instructions. Therefore, Ananda, be ye lamps unto yourselves. Be ye a refuge to yourselves. Betake yourselves to no external refuge. Hold fast to the truth as a lamp. Hold fast to the truth as a refuge. Look not for a refuge in anyone besides yourselves. And those who either now or after I'm dead shall be lamps unto themselves, shall betake to themselves no external refuge, but holding fast to the truth as their lamp, holding fast to the truth as their refuge, shall not look to re for refuge to anyone besides themselves. It is they who shall reach the very topmost height but they must be anxious to learn. Anxious to learn, another way of saying, you must have sincerity. You must bring sincerity to your exploration. Doesn't mean to not listen to others, uh, other encouragement, but ultimately, the Buddha is right inside of you. Trust her. Trust him. So let's sit for a moment.
you for your attention. And uh, here, I'll turn it off, and then I want to say something. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.